This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Tanya Mosley with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, live music and conversation from two of the best traditional jazz musicians around, trumpeter John Eric Kelso and guitarist Matt Munisteri. In 2007, they founded the band The Ear Regulars, who play Sunday nights at a very old bar in Greenwich Village called The Ear Inn. That's E-A-R. The Ear Regulars have a new live album called Live at the Ear Inn. Also, playwright Larissa Fasthorse. She's the first known Native American woman to have a show on Broadway with The Thanksgiving Play. And it was a long road to get there. It's a satire that pokes fun at political correctness and the way we talk and think about indigenous people in America. Fast Horse is currently working on a reimagining of Peter Pan. And David Biancooley reviews the new season of Fargo. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. From quick weekend getaways to international vacations, an annual travel plan from Allianz Travel Insurance can protect your adventures for the next 365 days. And with benefits starting as close as 100 miles from home, you can have peace of mind wherever you go. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Tanya Mosley, and you're in for a treat today. Trumpeter John Eric Kelso and guitarist Matt Munisteri are here to play and talk about the music they make in their band, The Ear Regulars. That's E-A-R, Regulars. They perform jazz mostly from the 20s through the 40s, and they have a new live album. They spoke with Fresh Air's Sam Brigger, who will take it from here. Sunday nights, I find myself feeling jealous of New Yorkers. That's because every Sunday night at a small old bar in the West Village called the Ear Inn, you can hear some really amazing music. Vibrant and vital jazz, even though some of the repertoire is 100 years old. The band, The Irregulars, was founded by our guests John Eric Kelso and Matt Munisteri and is led by Kelso. The band is usually a four-piece combo with friends sitting in. They set up in the corner of the Ear Inn and pass the hat at the set break which is kind of remarkable considering that these are some of the best jazz musicians around. I first heard the Irregulars on YouTube, where their weekly concerts have been pretty well documented. And I used to visit those videos during the pandemic when I needed a pick-me-up, because when you listen to this band, you can't help but smile. The Irregulars have just put out their first live album. It's called Live at the Ear In. And with the sound of the bar crowd in the background, you can close your eyes and almost believe you're there. John Eric Kelso and Matt Munisteri founded the Irregulars in 2007, but that band is just one of the many credits to their names. They've both recorded albums under their own names and with their own bands and appear on countless artists' albums. They are first-call session musicians whenever someone is recording any sort of traditional jazz and other genres of music. They were kind enough to bring their instruments today for our conversation. But before we get to that, let's hear a track from their new album, This is I Double Dare You, first recorded by Woody Herman in 1937. (laughs) ¶¶ 
That's the song I Double Dare You from the Irregulars' new album Live at the Ear In. Our guests are the founding members of the band, John Eric Kelso and Matt Munisteri. Welcome to Fresh Air. Thank, Thank you. <laughs> so why did you guys want to do a live album? The last album you did was recorded in a studio. Well, I, I've wanted to do a live album really since we started the gig there, but I've always been a little concerned that it might be too loud in there at times to do a live album. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sometimes it's you can hear a pin drop, and sometimes, uh, you know, we have some people that go there just because it's a bar, and they act like people in a bar. That's that's my little mantra I tell myself if I start to get upset about it being noisy. Start <laughs> but, getting particularly dark, yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, we've been thinking about it for 16 years, and we finally got around to it. It also, I think that room sounds really good. It sure does, And yeah. we thought that when we used to play there late nights, you know, and there would be no one in the place, and it was just the room sounds good. It's, it's wood and a lot of knickknacks and, I guess, beer-soaked <laughs> floorboards. And that's good something. for acoustics? Beer-soaked floors? Apparently, yeah. And uh, also just the idea of doing a live album with this band it was appealing because of the energy that we we generate there as far as the the, the uh, spontaneity in this group. It's, it's hard to recreate that in a studio setting. Mm. You know, you, you kind of can, but it's not the same as just, you know, the actual bouncing off of each other as we do <laughs> at the ear. Well, I'd like to ask you to do a song. Um, you said that you would do no one else but you, which is on the it's the third track of the album. Um, what can you tell us about the song before you place it? Uh, it started off. Uh, it was originally played by Louis Armstrong, and it's written by Don Redman, uh, who was a well-known arranger and band leader and composer in those early days. And uh, later on, it was played by. Uh, one of our heroes, Ruby Braff, and uh, another hero, George Barnes, on guitar. With their, they had a great uh, quartet, and uh, we kind of borrow from mostly from their version of it, as far as just the the format. Okay, well, we're going to hear "No One Else But You" with my guests, guitarist Matt Munisteri and trumpeter John Eric Kelso, and they also play this on their new album, "Live at the Ear Inn" with their band, The Irregulars. So let's hear it. Thank you. 
That was great. That was a song no one else but you uh, from John Eric Kelso on trumpet and Matt Munisteri on guitar. That's on their album uh, with their band, The Irregulars. The new album is called Live at the Ear Inn. Um, when I was listening to that, there was a point in the song where, John, you were doing this like descending line, and Matt, you played chords that sort of descended along with them. Did you know he was going to do that, or did you just hear it in the moment and follow along? Yes, I knew. I wish this is, this is, I feel like this is asking a magician how he does his <laughs> tricks. We don't really have very many arrangements, but this is, it's sort of the melody of the tune, and it's also taken, as John said, uh, largely on, on that arrangement, we were really borrowing from our two heroes, Ruby Braff and George Barnes's right. version. Right. So let me ask you about Ruby Braff and, and George Barnes. Um, did you... I think John, you knew Ruby Braff, right? You, yes, yeah, I got to know him. It was a pretty amazing thing for me. I was one of my heroes, and shortly after I moved to New York in 1989, moving from Detroit, we we got to hang out quite a bit. It was a really you know wonderful time for me to get get to know and talk to one of my heroes like that. Is there anything in particular that that you might have talked with him about that he taught you about? how he played the trumpet that's um, influenced the way you play? Well, he didn't really... He wasn't trying to teach me anything specifically about p- how to play the trumpet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, he he would sit down at the piano. He was actually a pretty decent piano player for a, for a cornet player. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, he would he would say, "Hey, do you know this song?" And, and start to play something, and I'd say, uh, "No." And he said, "Good, I'm going to teach it to you right now." So he would he would show me songs, and he would show me chords that some of the, that uh, he figured out from some of the masters, like Teddy Wilson. He said, "I finally figured out what Teddy Wilson is doing on the bridge to Sweet Lorraine," and he'd he'd show it to me. So he taught me in those kind of ways, and uh, mostly we were just hung out, and I listened to him tell his great anecdotes and you know just a lot of fun well although you're admitting that the piece you just did has some arrangements i mean one of the amazing things about the arrangements on the new album is they're they're really not arrangements like you guys are playing together the horns are doing collective improvisation um in the sort of style i guess that was originated in new orleans and um and i just wanted to hear some of that from the album, I was thinking that we could play part of the song "I'm Coming, Virginia," and um, we're going to cut in a little bit to the track. Matt, you start playing rhythm, and then um, one of the irregular Scott Robinson comes in with something. First of all, that sounds like a clarinet, but it's not, right? He li- he play- likes to play a lot of sort of odder instruments. What is that instrument he's playing? It's called a taragato, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it absolutely perfectly, but it's a Hungarian folk instrument basically and used primarily in in hungarian folk music and uh i like to think of it as kind of like a wooden soprano sax like a a kinder gentler soprano sax at least in scott's hands it is it's it's kind of kind of uh scary in most people's hands because it's not a factory made kind of precise instrument it's like you have to know a guy up on the hill to get one. That, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there actually is a real connection to traditional jazz history and the Terragato. And, John, you might have to correct me on this, but was Scott's first Terragato one that he got from Joe Moraney? That's he, right. Yeah, that's what I thought. So Joe Moraney was a Hungarian-American um, clarinetist who played with Louis Armstrong's All-Stars in the 1950s. 60s. Right? He was 60s. in his last... Okay version of the okay. all-stars yeah yeah and we all knew um knew Moraney also and scott and he were close and i think he turned um scott onto the terragato and he's since had several made in hungary huh. yeah cool well let's... including a including a contrabass terragato which is maybe the large. <laughs> it's it's maybe the only one in existence as far as we know huh. let's hope Let's hope. Yes. No, no, no. We kid. Well, well, let's hear this. Um, We're going to hear John Eric Kelso come in on the melody, and weaving around him, doing an improvisation, will be on trombone, John Allred, and on the Terragato, Scott Robinson. And the bass player on this is Neil Miner. (laughs) ¶¶ 
listening to Sam Brigger's conversation with trumpeter John Eric Kelso and guitarist Matt Munisteri. Their new album with their band, The Irregulars, is called Live at the Ear Inn. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, who believes that plants and gardening are for everyone. With over 25 years of developing, trialing, and testing some of the most recognized flowering shrubs and evergreens on the market, Proven Winners Color Choice makes it easy to transform dull yards into vibrant, colorful landscapes. Ready to spruce up your yard this spring? Proven Winners Color Choice created the Gardening Simplified Landscape Guide to help you get started with tried and true elements of good planting design. Identify the roles you want new plants to play in your outdoor space, like ground covers, climbers, or attracting pollinators. Then browse garden plans and see which layouts and plants can bring your vision to life. Proven Winners Colored Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide. Learn more at provenwinnerscoloredchoice.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. Let's get back to Sam Brigger's interview with trumpeter John Eric Kelso and guitarist Matt Munisteri. They're the founding members of the traditional jazz band, The Irregulars. They play Sunday nights at the Ear Inn in New York's Greenwich Village, hence the name. They're joined by a rotating cast of top jazz musicians on bass and other horns. It's usually a four- or five-piece band. But don't let the word traditional fool you into believing that this is some sort of nostalgia act. Although the songs they play are old, a lot of them are from the 20s and 30s. Their performances are as exciting and lively as anything out there. They have a new album. It's called Live at the Ear Inn. Um, I'd like to ask you to play another song here, if you will. Uh, you suggested that maybe you do the song Tishomingo Blues. Um, this is from the Irregulars album called Live at the Ear Inn. Ha 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 
That was great. That was Tishomingo Blues, um, played by trumpeter John Eric Kelso and Matt Mutisteri on guitar. Um, they're here because they have a, a new CD with their band, The Irregulars, that's called Live at the Ear Inn. That was really wonderful. Thank you for playing that. I think it's perhaps time to talk about Mutes, um, sure. hearing that song. Um, Don't reach for that dial, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Mutes? What? So, so you want to say the mute button on, the, yeah. on our... Trump, oh. Next Trump, we're going to be talking about mimes. <laughs> Trumpet players <laughs> like to accessorize, isn't that right, John? You, you have all sorts of things you stick at the end of your trumpet. Oh, Yes. Yes, this is this is a, a a fetish for trumpet players, and for me, it started pretty much right when I started playing trumpet at age ten. I, I was listening to my parents' old seventy-eight RPM records from the swing era, and uh, immediately it caught my ear. Uh, guys like Cootie Williams with uh, the Duke Ellington band and with the Benny Goodman uh, small bands uh, that he was using a plunger and. You know, making these kind of growling sounds and wah wah sounds, and that that thrilled me to no end. Like and an it, actual plunger, like a toilet plunger, right? Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. we like to call them sink plungers, <laughs> okay, mostly. <fair> you know, <laughs> mostly the trumpet uses I mean, the smaller. I'm hoping, I'm hoping they're not used whether they're sink or toilet plungers. Nah, yeah. nah, yeah. Maybe I'll, I'll demonstrate uh, the little pixie mute by itself and with the plunger and without the pixie mute just so you understand what that yeah that'd be great would that be good okay all right so uh this is uh playing with just the pixie mute okay so now this is with the pixie mute and the sink plunger So you get the idea of how uh, how you get some different tonal yeah. sounds yeah. that way. Oh, and and the plunger without the pixie. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for doing and, uh, that. Sure. Well, I wanted to end with a, a really beautiful song that you guys did on your last album, which is in the land of beginning again. This is a song called Smoke Rings. John Eric Calso and Matt Munisteri, thank you so much for coming in today. It was a real treat. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for having us. Jazz musicians John Eric Kelso and Matt Munisteri speaking with Fresh Air's Sam Brigger. Their new album with their band The Irregulars is called Live at the Ear Inn. Every two years for a decade now, on average, writer-producer Noah Hawley has created new TV miniseries editions of Fargo, inspired by the 1996 Coen Brothers movie. Each edition has run for a single season on FX, featuring an entirely new cast, setting, and storyline. The new 10-episode Season 5 of Fargo began this Tuesday on FX with a double-header premiere and will run weekly. Episodes are also available the next day on Hulu. This season stars Juno Temple from Ted Lasso and John Hamm from Mad Men in the Morning Show. Our TV critic David Biancooley has this review. When the first edition of Noah Hawley's version of Fargo was announced back in 2014, I was intensely skeptical. First, I'd loved the movie Fargo and wasn't sure its spirit could be recaptured. Second, I'd never even heard of Noah Hawley, who had been a writer on the TV series Bones. So even if bringing Fargo to television was a possibility, I didn't have any faith that he was the right person to do it. I couldn't have been more wrong and for more times in a row than I ever dreamed. 
That first Fargo, starring Martin Freeman and Billy Bob Thornton, was brilliant, hilarious, dark, and intoxicatingly unpredictable. It wasn't a retelling of the movie, just a faithful exploration and echo of its spirit. And after sticking that landing, Hawley doubled down and did it again and again and again. He kept coming up with new iterations of Fargo, each separate from the rest like an umbrella anthology series. I've loved them all, and this is my favorite yet. Noah Hawley wrote or co-wrote all ten episodes and directed many of them. Critics were provided the first six, which are enough for me to proclaim Fargo one of the very best TV offerings of the year. Juno Temple, so sparkly and effervescent in Ted Lasso, stars as a completely different character here. Dorothy Dot Lyon, a seemingly unimposing Minnesota housewife and mother. We meet her with her daughter at a junior high school board meeting. But when the meeting devolves into a giant brawl, Dot fights fiercely to get her daughter to safety. Once she gets outside, she's grabbed by the police and thrown into a cop car. The deputy is played by Richa Morjani, the star of Never Have I Ever. She's behind the wheel, and Dot, played by Juno Temple, is handcuffed in the back seat and leaning forward to begin a conversation. Ma'am, I'm sorry, could, um... Could you? I'm worried about my daughter. We just saw her mama carted away in handcuffs. Well, you should have thought about that before you tased the officer. Should have thought. Oh boy. I hope my daughter don't see her mama carted away in handcuffs. What's the world coming to? Is all I'm saying. Neighbor against neighbor. That. I agree with you there. We were just trying, me and my girl, to get out. School board meeting, my ASS. And then Mr. Abernathy, the math teacher, he came at me like something from a zombie movie. Which don't come at a mama lion when she's got her cub. You know what I mean? But the officer, that... He was just wrong place, wrong time. That arrest sets this new season of Fargo in motion. That's partly because Dot has married into a wealthy family and her mother-in-law Lorraine, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, already drips with disapproval. Lee is outstanding here, like an even more imperious Catherine Hepburn. But everyone in this cast is a treat and a bonus. David Rizdahl from Oppenheimer plays Dot's husband, Wayne, who's sweet and supportive. Dave Foley, from the Kids in the Hall and News Radio, plays the family attorney, Danish Graves, who's ruthless. All of them are at Lorraine's dinner table the night of the school board meeting, after Dot has been arrested, booked, and released. What were you doing there in the first place? I mean, it was the school board meeting. I'm on the committee for the new library. Mm. We're trying to raise money to expand thrillers and mysteries. Be child and the like. Can't you just give money like a normal person? Well, come on now, Ma. We, we don't have a... I, mean, I, I make a good wage, but... You have a trust. Just talk to Danish. Nothing frivolous, of course, which thrillers. Mm. You might want to think that through a little more. Or, here's a thought. Write your own Pulp Fiction, now that you're an outlaw. The other plotline set in motion by Dot's outlaw status has to do with her mysterious past, which becomes an issue once her fingerprints are in the National Law Enforcement Database. Several people end up looking for her, and one of them, who doesn't even have a line of dialogue until Episode 2, is North Dakota Sheriff Roy Tillman, played by John Hamm. He sure is worth the wait, though. Sheriff Tillman operates by his own rules. That's made clear the first time he's visited by a pair of FBI agents out to rein him in. Jessica Poli as Agent Meyer and Nick Gomez as Agent Joaquin. Agent Jaquin. It's Joaquin. This is Agent Meyer. We're new in the Fargo office. We thought we'd come by and see why you weren't enforcing any of our laws. What laws? Well, you know, 
gun laws, drug laws, any of a half dozen other American laws passed and ratified by the United States government that you don't seem to recognize. Well, Agent Jaqueen, I think you'll find that there is no one on God's green earth who is a greater enforcer of the laws of this land than Roy Tillman. Why do I feel like there's a but here? But what you need to know is that I am law of the land, elected by the residents of this county to interpret and enforce the Constitution given unto us by Almighty God. The special thrills in this edition of Fargo include the entertaining resourcefulness of Dot, the unexpected alliances of several characters, the fiery confrontations when dangerous adversaries finally come face to face, and, as always, the sudden eruptions of humor and violence, sometimes at the same instant. I don't know how Noah Hawley and his team keep pulling off each new season of Fargo, but somehow they do. David Biancooli is professor of television studies at Rowan University. He reviewed the new season of Fargo, which began this week on FX. Coming up, playwright Larissa Fasthorse talks about her satirical comedy, The Thanksgiving Play. Fasthorse became the first Native American woman known to have a play produced on Broadway. This is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Dive into the chilling new Hulu original series, Under the Bridge, the riveting adaptation of the acclaimed true crime book. Based on shocking true events, Under the Bridge tells the haunting story of a murder that lays bare a small community's darkest secrets. Go deep into the hidden world of the town's tormented teenagers as detectives race to solve the sinister crime. Starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone, Under the Bridge is now streaming with new episodes Wednesdays, only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning wherever you get your podcasts. On the first day of Thanksgiving, the natives gave to me a pumpkin in a pumpkin patch. On the second day of Thanksgiving, the natives gave to me Two turkey gobblers and a pumpkin in a pumpkin patch. On the third day of Thanksgiving, the natives gave to me Three native headdresses, two turkey gobblers, and a pumpkin in a pumpkin patch. That's a song from the opening scene of the theater production, The Thanksgiving Play. It ran earlier this year on Broadway and was written by my guest, Larissa Fasthorse, the first known Native American woman playwright to produce a Broadway production. The Thanksgiving play is a satire that focuses on four well-meaning white people trying to put on a politically correct holiday school production for Native American Heritage Month. They even hire who they believe is a Native American actor, but later discover she is also white. During its off-Broadway run, it became one of the 10 most produced plays in America with runs at universities and community theaters. But the success for Fast Horse comes after years of trying and failing to get theaters to consider stories that center Native American characters. It was only after Thanksgiving play that major doors began to open. Larissa Fast Horse is of the Sichangu Lakota Nation. Her latest play, For the People, ran earlier this month at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis and centers around a Native community fighting for grant money to create a wellness center. And this winter, Fast Horse is taking on the musical version of the classic Peter Pan, providing a keen eye on revising some of the story's problematic depictions of Native Americans. Larissa Fast Horse, welcome to Fresh Air. For those who have not seen uh, Thanksgiving play, can you list off some of the issues that these characters are grappling with as they're trying to produce this play for uh, Native Heritage Month? Yeah, um, which, by the way, happy Native American Heritage Month. It is right now. Um, ah. <laughs> all of November. So many people don't realize, but it is. Um, yeah. yeah. So so these folks are trying to create a play that honors Native American Heritage Month and Thanksgiving somehow without any Native American people in it. So it's clearly grappling with erasure um, of indigenous voices and trying to create for us without us, which is 
still a constant problem. Um, and they're talking a lot about Thanksgiving itself, which, you know, the history of Thanksgiving is such a wild mess of muckiness. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it just, it is not clear. What is so interesting about the way the play is written um, kind of speaks to what you're saying is like, people can see from your point of view what it's like to sit in whiteness, but also the characters are so over the top playing performative progressives. In a way, it feels like everyone can be in on the joke, too. It's not making fun of. It's like laughing with, not at. Was that your intent as well? Yeah, for sure. I wanted it to be something fun. I wanted. I love comedy. I love theater because we come into a room together and we experience something with the same breath. And comedy uses a lot of breath, right? You know, we do a lot of, um, even if you're not laughing out loud, which people fortunately do in this show, people are breathing and inhaling and exhaling in these exciting ways. And so it was important to me that it's just funny, that it's funny to everybody, that anyone can come into the room, including super woke white people, and they can enjoy what they see on stage and they can have fun and they can laugh. Um, I've, I've told the story before, but there's there's this what I call the unifying joke. So in the very first few minutes of the show, there's what what, what I call the unifying joke that that applies to everybody. It's just a silly joke that you don't have to be any particular color or you know political yeah. whatever to to understand. And I remember sitting in the very first preview in New York before the Broadway production, and. The unifying joke was said, and the audience burst out laughing. And I said to myself, this is the sound of your life changing. You know, what is ironic about the success of of Thanksgiving play is that for um, a long time, as you mentioned, you really couldn't get um, these theaters to consider stories of Native people that were central. But this is an all-white cast that got you to Broadway. And I know that that's your dream. Is um, Are you proud of that? Or is that just like, okay, this is what needed to happen in the moment, but there'll be other times that I'll be back with an all-Native cast? Yeah. You know, I'm incredibly proud of this piece. It's, like I said, it it does the things I want to do. It brings so much joy to so many people. I mean, I hear from people around the country endlessly on the social media platforms. um, and And it makes so many people think. And it's Honestly, from what people tell me, you know, it's changed a lot of lives. I'm I'm super proud of it. But, of course, I, I want to be on Broadway with Native American actors. That would yeah. be fantastic. Um, you know, I'm really proud that I got to be, you know, the first Native American, known Native American woman. I, I guarantee you there was another Native American female writer before this, but they didn't identify that way for various reasons. You're also taking on a classic, as I mentioned the musical version of Peter Pan, directed Mm -hmm. by Lonnie Price, which goes on tour in December. And you were brought on to help tackle the musical depictions of Native Americans. There are quite a few um, racist tropes. Yeah, actually, you know, I was just brought on to help rewrite the script. And so it's in all ways. Um, It's interesting because (laughs) folks focus on the Native part, obviously, because of my name and all. But, um, you know, it people forget. My, my first job was the fact that it was a three-hour, two-intermission musical. And we're talking about the original Jerome Robbins on Broadway that starred, you know, most people know Kathy Rigby from it most recently. Um, Mary Martin did it originally. Uh-huh. And so it was a three-hour, two-intermission musical. People don't uh-huh. do those for families anymore. <laughs> you know, it's just not what we do. So actually, my very first job was to take it down to a one-intermission two-hour musical. Um, and that was a huge job because you can't just chop out, you know, the, the story, pirates. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can't just say, oh, we'll just cut out the pirates or we'll just cut out Neverland or, you know, you can't do that. Um, it's all woven together. So it meant having to go scene by scene and page by page and carefully just cull and cull and cull and cull until we got down to a two-hour show with one intermission. It also meant restructuring the whole show to move that intermission somewhere else because we couldn't have it where originally there was a really early intermission for the, the first one and the second one was much later. So that was my first job. And wow. then after that was tackling the Native American characters, well, the at the time, it was called Tiger Lily and the Tribe. And then also tackling, to be quite honest, the bigger job was tackling the depiction of women. Um, mm. Women in the past <laughs> in this show 
never spoke to each other um, except for uh, Tiger Lily in Ugga Wugga. The women didn't have songs. You know, it was a very, um, very male-heavy show. And it certainly still is, but I've done a lot of work to make sure that the women are much fuller characters. You know, it's pretty clear the um, the stereotypes in um, a classic like Peter Pan um, and how they could be taken as offensive. Can you talk a little more specifically about some of the offensive or hurtful things within it um, that you identify? The, the Native people come into play in Neverland, right? And so Neverland <laughs> is a magical place. Um, and it's a place where no one ever grows old. It's a place of fairies and pirates and dancing animals and things. And so just the the idea of indigenous or Native American, traditionally Native American people, like Tiger Lily and her tribe being there, is already just a problem. Like, we're real people. Why are we in Neverland? Um, you know, the Lost mm. Boys are boys that fell out of their prams as infants and somehow ended up there, you know. So... It, it it doesn't make sense for us to be in the same realm as what's treated as magical creatures. Hook is certainly not a, a realistic depiction of a pirate. You know, he's a larger than life sort of magical um, tale happening. So th- the presence of us in Neverland was already a problem. And then if you look carefully at the source material, um, not just the source material, the source material of this play, um, we it was just assumed. And never said why. It was just assumed that we're all trying to kill the Indians and the Indians are trying to kill us. And if you look, there's no reason. That's just how the world is. White, you know, lost boys, which were traditionally white, were trying to kill the Indians and Indians were trying to kill them. And that was just it. And it was accepted as truth without any question. And so I said, okay, how do we work within the parameter of Neverland? And change this. And I also wanted to think forward, right? So I'm thinking ahead to the future and saying, how do we also make it so folks doing the show further on do not have to portray red face, which is non-Indigenous people playing Indigenous roles? Because we perhaps in this production could afford to hire all Native American people, but not everybody can. And not everybody Mm. has um, that casting available to them. So what I chose to do with this play is I took... Tiger Lily, and I kept her name because it's iconic um, and beloved. And she's now the leader of this tribe of people. But each of those people is the last of an extinct culture somewhere in the world. So it makes sense why they're in this world. Right. Yeah. So they come here because they can. They never grow old. So they can preserve mm-hmm. their culture in a place where they're safe and hope that one day they can return to this world and bring their culture with them. And so I use the magic of Neverland as a positive for these people, as somewhere where they can survive and preserve and grow and keep their culture going until they find another home for it. This is so interesting because, of course, the depictions of natives, that's that's very obvious. But were there parts of the play that, like, once you went by line by line, you realized there were these things, like women not talking to each other, that you could finally see that maybe you didn't even see in this classic? Yeah, for sure. I mean, now, to be fair, I hadn't never read it before I was offered the job. Um, mm. It was something But had I'd, you seen, had you seen like depictions on television or you knew about it? I knew about it and I honestly had avoided it all my life because all I'd heard was the negative and the way that it caused so much harm to Native mm. people um, throughout the century, uh, the century that's been around, well, more than that, right? It's been around since the 1800s. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I'd only heard about the harm. So I'd avoided it and not I'd seen it once when I was in ballet school in St. Louis, and we were sitting the very back of the Muni Theater, which is like a 10,000-seat outdoor theater. So I, I don't have really any memories from it, and that's the only time I've really encountered it. So when I was offered the job, and to be honest, you know, I was brought in late. You know, I was the last person of the creative team to be brought in. Um, my my agent, you know, told me about it, and I was like, nope. Nope, nope, nope. I don't want to get Why anywhere no? near that. Because you just, because of the harm, you just yeah. felt like you didn't want to. And I, you know, I I can't tell you what they are, but I had been working on a movie version, a TV version of two classic musicals that I was, quote, fixing and updating. 
And I was like, I don't want to be known as a fixer. Like, that's just, mm. I, I want to do my own work, you know. And I said, and I just don't want to be involved in it. It's harmful, et cetera. And he said to me, well, look, you haven't read it. I don't, you know, I told him I had never read it. And he said, just, these are legit people. Lonnie's a fantastic director. You know, these are fantastic um, networks, tours, is doing the tour. You know, they're great producers. Just read it so you can say you've done your due diligence and on Monday we'll pass. It's like, fine, I'll read it. I was just, um, I was shocked. I had no idea how good it is. I mean, there's uh-huh. a reason this material continues to be Endures. done. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's been done for so long. And it was beautiful. And Neverland's such a complicated place. And that's what I love about writing when I write for intergenerational audiences, which this is for, is things that are complicated. It's not just cute and sweet and funny. It's difficult. You know, Peter Pan has issues. <laughs> that, that boy's got some problems, you know. <laughs> and so um, it's not just all fun and games. And and yet there also is fun and games and incredible magic and flying and all of those things and fairies and pirates. And, you know, so I was like, oh, I really want to be a part of this. And I want to I do want to fix it because I think it's worth fixing. And so I, I took the job and it's been, gosh, almost not quite two years now since I took it. Larissa, before theater, you were in film and television as a creative executive and then as a film producer. I'm very curious about the creative executive title, but what made you leave that genre? Yeah. Um, yeah, the creative executive title is actually my way of beco- going to film school and becoming a writer. Um, you know, I, I just I was a married to an artist and I was a classical ballet dancer in my first career. And honestly, I just didn't have the time or the money to go back to school. And so I worked my way up through the business um, to become a creative executive because those are the people they are basically – um, editors in the film and TV world. They're the people that find writers, work with writers, work on the scripts, give the notes, et cetera. And that's how I learned to be a writer was through that. How and did that role help you? I'm just thinking about because you're so savvy in your ability to navigate systems. How did it help you in navigating different worlds, especially the worlds you move in now? Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, that time in Hollywood was invaluable. I think, you know, one of the best things that I got from it was an economy of words and a a pace of realism. TV, you know, is literally, you know, time is money. You know, advertisers are down to the, you know, seconds of time. And so each word you use has to be so carefully decided on because you don't have seconds to waste because you have to sell this many seconds to be able to afford this stuff. Um, I think the other thing that I really got from that education as a film and TV developer and then writer later was a lack of preciousness. I, I'm very clear, you know, mm. film and TV, you're, you're constantly throwing out thousands of pages. I mean, when you do a TV show, the pages are just gone. Whole, whole episodes disappear and are rewritten and change and start over. And, and there's a speed in that work that I got that has served me incredibly well as a playwright. You know, when I was in the room with Lonnie Price working on Peter Pan these last few weeks, he he was saying, wow, if you ever decide to become a full-time musical book writer, you will work all the time because I can rewrite 30 pages in a couple hours. Um, That's easy because TV works at that speed. And so that's really helped me a lot in my playwriting career. Larissa Fasthorse, congratulations on the success of your plays and your art. And thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciate you speaking with me. Um, It's always a joy to talk with you, and I appreciate you letting me talk about all the fun things we're doing. Larissa Fasthorse wrote the Thanksgiving play, which ran on Broadway earlier this year, making her the first known Native American playwright to produce a Broadway production. This winter, she'll be part of a refreshed take on the musical Peter Pan, which has its nationwide premiere in December. Fresh Air Weekend was produced this week by Heidi Saman. 
Our Fresh Air executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorak, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krinzel, Teresa Madden, Thea Challoner, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing Themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences— You'll hear. It means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast.